I don't think it's particularly steamy. Um, so like two eggplant emojis. That's what one of my <laughs> friends uses. Out of how many? I don't Five. know. Five. <laughs> Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing the second half of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and pairing it with contemporary reads that feature similar themes. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Are you ready to talk about part two? Yes, but I'm already sad that we're going to be done talking about Pride and Prejudice. I know. The good news is, I mean, we're going to be almost done with it, like podcast-wise, and we're recording this ahead of time, so it's going to feel like we're done talking about it, but we get to keep talking about it on Instagram and, of course, with our patrons over in our Patreon community, and I'm really excited about that. I am so excited for our Patreon book club that's going to be happening at the end of this month, where we will be discussing Pride and Prejudice live with a bunch of other readers and So if you want to join us there, go ahead and visit the link in our show notes. We would love to have you as a patron, and we'd love to have you at book club this month. I'm so excited to discuss this and to get super nerdy with everyone. We have said before, as we were planning these episodes, we could just spend an entire season or, frankly, an entire year deep diving into Pride and Prejudice on the podcast, and it's been a lot of fun. I'm really excited to talk about part two because, I mean, arguably, even though part one does such a great job of setting things up, part two is where things really pick up. It's where we get some drama and action and scandal, and it just feels like things kind of race to the inevitable happy conclusion. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, part one, I think, has more of my favorite scenes, but part two just so much happens and she just really kind of explodes the book outwards and we get to visit different places and other characters become more important. So it is so fun. And we left off with Mr. Darcy's very awkward (laughs) and kind of mean proposal to Elizabeth. Our poor Elizabeth was left flattered but in tears after her argument with with Darcy. From from there, we pick up with a very important letter. There are lots of great letters in this book, but this one, I think, is the most important that we see. It really is. And it's just basically Darcy laying all of the information out and explaining himself, not necessarily to try and win Elizabeth back, because it's not like he hands the letter to her and says, write back to me, or I'll be back to talk about this. Right. He just he just wants to clear things up. And I think in the last episode, you mentioned his honesty and how he just really 
wants people to understand what's going on. He wants he wants her to know all of the facts. And that's basically what this letter is. So he writes her a letter not only to explain why he separated Jane and Bingley and sort of explain himself from his point of view, he also explains the entire Mr. Wickham situation. Yes, and we didn't really touch on that at all in the first episode, but Wickham has told Elizabeth that Mr. Darcy basically tricked and cheated him out of an inheritance, and that is why he was forced to join the militia. I I think one important thing to note, a couple important things to note about that interaction with Wickham and Elizabeth, one is that I think we're supposed to know right away that Wickham isn't trustworthy because he says that he won't gossip and then gossips. And so that's a clear sign that maybe he isn't a man of his word. And then the other thing is Elizabeth is so pissed about this, not because she thinks, not exclusively because she's like, oh, poor Wickham, but she's like, poor me. He could have married me if he'd had that inheritance that Darcy cheated him out of. And so she really takes that personally. And um, that's why she, one of the reasons she's so pissed at Darcy. But then he explains that in the letter. And he explains that the main reason that Mr. Wickham was basically disinherited is that he is not a great guy. And Something that I think is so telling in this letter is that Darcy shares really private, personal information with Elizabeth. He says that Mr. Wickham basically ruined his younger sister, Georgiana. He tried to run away with her and Darcy had to intervene and Mm -hmm. step in before Wickham ruined Georgiana tried to marry her for inheritance or just left her without marrying her. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much akin to sexual assault because as a man in that time period, Wickham has more power over Georgiana. So even if she went with him, consented, it's that power dynamic that really makes it an assault, I think. And she's and we'll 15. see this, of course, again. Yeah, she's super young. Mm-hmm. That as well. We'll see this, of course, again with Lydia. And it's basically a repeat situation. And this information about Georgiana, if it got out widely, would ruin the family. Her reputation would be ruined. She wouldn't be able to marry anyone ever. And Darcy, his reputation would be ruined as well. So if that information gets out, it is horrible. Darcy has managed to keep it all quiet. That he tells Elizabeth in detail in a physical letter and entrusts her with this information is huge. It really shows how deep his affection is for her, how much he knows and trusts that she isn't going to spread this information. And and she doesn't. She keeps it to herself. It just really shows how much he cares about her. I also think part of where this letter becomes important for their relationship, Elizabeth and Darcy's, is 
we see his extreme affection and protectiveness of his sister. And that is something that Elizabeth can really relate to. She feels exactly the same way about her own siblings. And seeing that side of Darcy is part of what begins to change her mind about him. And and even though she disagrees with his explanation about Jane and Bingley, she starts to understand a little bit more because this is the moment where he tells her, yes, I thought your family wasn't right for my friend, Mr. Bingley. However, the other reason is that I didn't think Jane was that interested in him. It seemed like it was just about the money. And so Elizabeth is finally starting to see from another perspective that's not one of her strong suits. And she is kind of coming around to that here. And she really takes it to heart. She reads Mr. Darcy's letter. And it's not necessarily that she just automatically believes him right away, but she thinks back on all of these moments with Wickham and all of her observations of his behavior and how he acted around her and other women. And she realizes, oh yeah, Darcy has something here and I can totally understand where he's coming from. And Jane Austen writes, she grew absolutely ashamed of herself. Of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling that she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. And and I, I think that that, you know, that level of reflection and acknowledgement of one's wrongdoing is a really common theme in Jane Austen. I, I really love how she writes about characters beginning to see some of their own faults. And, you know, I, I think we don't want Elizabeth to feel ashamed forever. We understand why she felt the way she did. But it, like you mentioned in our previous episode, just seeing her growth is one of the things that really endears her to readers. It's definitely one of my favorite parts of reading a Jane Austen novel. And it's moralistic without being pedantic. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about that when we discussed Little Women, how we thought that the morality of the novel was a little bit too hit your head with it. But here, it seems so much more natural. And I think that that reflection piece and the fact that the reflections are on the page helps with that. And of course, Elizabeth feels shame and she's sorry for herself. But like you said, it doesn't stick for terribly long and she isn't necessarily beating herself up over it. But she's just sitting in that space where you feel silly and you feel so supremely vulnerable and human after misreading a situation. Yes, I think too, I just, the chapter after the letter, we learn that she's been reading it over and over. She's been reflecting on it a lot. And we talked in the previous episode about how um, Elizabeth thought maybe Colonel Fitzwilliam would be a good match for her. And at at the end of volume two, chapter 13, Colonel Fitzwilliam comes to, to say goodbye. <laughs> and she has no interest in talking to him. And that, that chapter ends with Austin writing, Colonel Fitzwilliam was no longer an object. She could think only of her letter. And she's doing so much in that little sentence, right? Because she's comparing Fitzwilliam, the person, the object of interest, 
to the letter. And so we're we're seeing now that Darcy is becoming an object of interest and also how it's her letter. She goes back home. She tells Jane what happened. And then she is shortly thereafter on the road again with her aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. And here is where we really, really get to see that Elizabeth's feelings are changing. So while Elizabeth is off on her trip, we also know that in the background, Lydia is off to Brighton for her own trip. So we've got a couple of sisters out of the nest. But I absolutely love when Elizabeth and her travel companions first go to Pemberley and she sees how huge Pemberley is and how beautiful it is and that there are woods and there's nature all around it, which we know she loves nature. What are men to rocks and mountains? (laughs) It says Elizabeth's mind was too full for conversation, but she saw and admired every remarkable spot and point of view. And then Jean Austen says they were all of them warm in their admiration. And at that moment, she felt that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be. Wow, it might be something. Yes. I, and I think that this is where um, some of the the themes of love and money and security, she's really playing with and delving into because I think it's an oversimplification to say that Elizabeth didn't fall in love with Darcy until she saw the house. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a huge part of it, right? I mean, and it's both the fact that this house is massive and she sees like the the security and the ways she could help her sisters and, and all of that in the house. It's also that the house is in really good taste. And there's lots of descriptions of the the natural landscape and how Darcy's house isn't landscaped like many Regency homes would be with really kind of artificial lines and landscaping. The natural world is allowed to be free and beautiful on his property. And that is supposed to be kind of symbolic of of both him like having the the good taste and and being a good caretaker for this, but also maybe how he would be with Elizabeth. And I I love all of that because, yes, I think these two are very much in love and will be a very good match. But also it is important that Elizabeth takes the economics into account when she is making her decision. I don't know that it is what makes her fall in love with him. I don't even think that hearing from all of the servants about what a good man he is makes her fall in love with him. I think that happens a little bit later, but I think that it definitely opens her mind and makes her feel regret for writing him off Mm -hmm. and sort of makes her open to the possibility of reconciliation. But you can't say that that security doesn't make a difference 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that that is really, really important to, to Austin. And one of the things that often frustrates me about some adaptations, whether they are retellings or film adaptations, is the modern focus on, oh, Elizabeth is choosing love and she she wouldn't just marry for financial security. And I really just to emphasize, I, I think that Jane Austen is showing us marriages that happen just for money, marriages that happen just for love, and marriages that took it all into consideration. And she really is promoting that idea of balance and how it's all important. I think that this section or somewhere in part two before Elizabeth heads out on her journey is where we get that little reflection about her father and how he treats her mother and their marriage. And we know that their marriage was sort of just based in attraction and they didn't take a whole lot into consideration before getting married. And there's this, I mean, it's a really real reveal of Mr. Bennett's true character mm-hmm. and the fact that he doesn't necessarily treat Mrs. Bennett all that great. And he isn't the greatest father and caregiver because he spent all of their money and didn't consider them well enough. Yeah. We get that a couple of times. So we get that, I think, before she leaves and when he is talking to Mrs. Bennett poorly. And then later, when we learn about Lydia and Wickham and when there needs to be money involved and Mr. Bennett is not the one, he can't save his own family. Mm-hmm. And so we really get those very real looks at the Bennett family and what Elizabeth has witnessed with her parents and with money and struggling with money and being unhappy with each other because of it. And we get the sense that, yes, she absolutely will take the comfort and security into consideration. I I think that that is extremely important, that that is the Bennett's history and that that's what Elizabeth, who's extremely smart, has has witnessed. It, it says a lot, I think, that some of the other daughters have not learned that lesson from their parents' marriage and maybe can't perceive the danger of just running off with a, a man who shows interest. Um, but Elizabeth and, and Jane, too, I think we can include her in that, really seem to have learned a lot and internalized a lot from their parents' marriage. And that leads them to their own satisfying marriages. We're we're approaching anyway, so I think that we should talk about Lydia and Wickham, particularly because Lizzie gets the news while she's at Pemberley. Mm-hmm. And I really like that scene because she's reading her letter and she's distressed and Mr. Darcy already steps in and really cares about what's happening and tries to help her already. And so we learn through the letter to Lizzie first that Lydia and Wickham might be a thing. And then a much more urgent letter that, oh my goodness, they ran away together. They're going to Gretna Green 
and this is awful. Mm-hmm. And it's awful because they ran away together, but they aren't exactly sure if he's actually going to marry her. And that's really dangerous because like we learned with Georgiana, that will absolutely ruin a young woman's reputation. This is a time when virginity is incredibly important for the marriage contract and where if you just ran off with some guy, there isn't going to be anyone else that's going to marry you. Not only that, but nobody will marry any of the other Bennett sisters if that happens. And so it is really, really important that Wickham and Lydia get married. Mm-hmm. And wow, it is dramatic, especially because <laughs> of Mrs. Bennett. <laughs> it is so dramatic. Um, yeah, so Gretna Green is the place right on the other side of the Scottish border where a woman as young as 15, I think, could get married without the permission of of her family. So um, Wickham is saying that's where they're going. But we have no mm-hmm. reason to believe that he has any real interest in marrying Lydia. She's pretty easy prey. And we already know that Wickham has told Elizabeth that he has to marry someone with a fortune. And Lydia is not that person. So w- we have all of the information in place already to be really nervous about Lydia. And not a one of these sisters is married yet. So that, I mean, that's ruining the entire family. So if I call Elizabeth a little bit selfish for not marrying Mr. Collins, I mean, Lydia is the extreme example of impulsiveness and selfishness and I mean, she's 15, so like that sounds about right, but (laughs) this is going to be a huge problem for the family. Yeah, and the only way to solve it is with money. Yes. The only way to solve it is to pay Wickham to marry Lydia, which sounds horrible because it is, but she was property. Mm -hmm. And so basically Mr. Gardner goes to see if he can settle things because as we've said, Mr. Bennett, This is just, A, not his thing. He cannot deal with this. And B, he doesn't have the money to do anything about it. I'm glad you bring up the gardeners, too, because I always like, you know, whatever my hands at them because they're not particularly interesting (laughs) characters. But their inclusion, I think, is really important because they are much more rational and they do have a much more solid marriage. And I, I, at one point, Austin says that something about how if Elizabeth, if the only marriage she had ever seen was her parents, she might never want to get married. And I think the Gardners <laughs> are one of the examples Elizabeth grew up with of what a good marriage could be. And the fact that Mr. Gardner can step in and be that sort of father figure, at least in this realm, is it says a lot about, about them. I love there's this one part where The gardeners and Elizabeth are leaving Pemberley and Austin says something about how they're talking about everything that happened except for the main thing, which was meeting Darcy. And Elizabeth really, really, really wants to hear what her aunt has to say about him, but she doesn't want to be the one to bring it up because she's still like really shy about Mm -hmm. that whole situation. And Mrs. Gardner wants nothing more but for Lizzie to bring it up so that they can talk about it. (laughs) And it's just a window into this really sweet 
relationship that they have. And I, I like that they're, I don't know. I really like Mr. And Mrs. Gardner, even though they are less important side characters, but I don't know. I think that you're really lucky if you have an aunt like that or someone in your family or like a family friend that feels like a parent, but isn't your parent. Absolutely. I I love that depiction. And it exists in other Austin novels. She clearly thinks it's important for young people to have other, you know, older adults in their lives who are not just their parents, especially when you have parents like the Bennetts. <laughs> <laughs> and and so Wickham and Lydia do get married. And really the family assumes that Mr. Gardner took care of everything. That's what Mr. Bennett is told. And they're extremely grateful to the Gardner's <laughs> Mrs. Bennett's mood instantly lifts. <laughs> she goes from being extremely distraught to just the proudest, happiest mother on the planet because she has a daughter who's married. It's all she's ever wanted. <laughs> and it's one of her youngest daughters. Her youngest. So she, yeah. That's not necessarily a great thing. No. That kind of makes the family look bad. But to her, she's like, Yes, I got one married and it was the youngest, which means it was like an even greater accomplishment to get this one out first. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes we we think back and we think, oh, like, you know, 15, whatever people got married. That that was young at this time, mm-hmm. too. Um, quite young to to get married. So I I, I think that's not just a um time period difference like this that would have been true for regency readers as well to to feel that Lydia was maybe not quite ready we get the information later on that Mr. Darcy is the one who went and interfered and paid Mr. Wickham and basically saved the day and he didn't want this information out I think partly because he he didn't do it in order to, like, get Lizzie to marry him. Although, you know, that would have been smart, right? <laughs> I mean, he genuinely did it because he knows who Wickham is. And I feel like I appreciated him doing this even more reading it now when I have more of an awareness and when I've been, like, paying closer attention to... We've seen in the media all of these men who protect other men when they're doing bad things. Mm-hmm. And to have Darcy do this thing, yes, because he loves Elizabeth, but also because he knows who Wickham is and he wants to protect people from him. It just felt really good. It's really satisfying. And it's definitely the most heroic thing that Darcy does in the novel. And it's so important that his heroism was directed. I mean, it saves Elizabeth. First of all, he couldn't have married Elizabeth if <laughs> yes, this is true. If Lydia had been ruined. So, you know, I'm not saying that's his motivation, but I I do think that like he he gets something out of it in in the end. Um, but that his his action was towards her family, the family mm-hmm. that he had disparaged and mocked and told her was a reason he shouldn't marry her. He rescues that family. And that I think says a lot to Elizabeth, not that he's completely changed his mind about her family, but that he sees them as worth his notice and protection and and money and security. 
Yeah. And it's definitely, I mean, I think that it's the moment when Elizabeth realizes, and it's hard to parse out love versus just, oh, he's a catch. Mm -hmm. Like, I really should have grabbed him when I could (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. oh, he is a catch. And I realized that he actually would be a really great husband. And she's really worried that Lydia's behavior has ruined any chance that Mr. Darcy could think about her in that way again. Um, And, you know, I I think she is very realistic about the fact that she (laughs) probably wounded his pride too much to hope. But then Lydia's behavior really kind of sinks that. But lucky for Elizabeth, Mr. Darcy grew and changed a lot through the course of this novel as well. And he's willing to put himself out there again. He is. And it's so good. The The end of this book is just so satisfying. I have to say, though, I love, I mean, might be one of my favorite scenes. It's not like Darcy saves the day and like, oh, boom, he comes back and sweeps Elizabeth off of her feet. It's much more realistic than that. Where we get sort of the um, Lydia and Wickham return and there's that sort of little celebration. And then Bingley and Darcy end up coming back into town and eventually they call on the Bennets. Um, But prior to that, we get Lady Catherine de Bourgh on the page again. She pops up. She comes all the way out of her fancy, fancy house just to talk to Elizabeth Bennet. And I love that scene so much. She's a trip. (laughs) She really is. (laughs) Uh, She's a great character. And you can just tell that Jane Austen loves writing characters like Lady Catherine. Mm -hmm. The, The dialogue just sparkles in those scenes. I love it. And Lady Catherine, and this, I mean, this is certainly when the reader knows for sure that Elizabeth wants to be with Darcy because Lady Catherine asks her specifically to promise and vow and say that she will never accept his hand in marriage. And Elizabeth says that she can't do that. And of course, we've spent this entire novel rooting for Elizabeth and being really excited when she sort of snaps back at Darcy and when she's sassy and when she's headstrong. But I think this is the most satisfying scene when she is truly obstinate and the full force of her character is used on Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Yeah, it's it's fun to see Elizabeth kind of verbally spar with with anyone. And yeah, you just really you see her change of mind in that that <laughs> conversation. There's so many fun moments of the end of this book. I, I also, I like seeing Elizabeth confess her feelings. I, I think we've talked a bit about what the book is saying about pride and vanity. And um, Elizabeth tells her her father that Darcy has no improper pride. I think that's mm-hmm. a really important moment. Like she, he's still prideful, but he has humbled himself in many ways and, and, come to understand that his outward superiority is not serving him well. But he still is proud of what he has and what he's done. 
And that is proper pride, I think, is what Elizabeth is saying. And and I, I like the return to that question at the end. Mm-hmm. She's seen Pemberley. She would be proud of it, too. Mm-hmm. She will and, be. <laughs> right, exactly. And she has also met Georgiana. She would be proud to be her sister. She has heard about what a good man Darcy is. Yeah, there are there are a lot of reasons for him to be proud of himself, but it does seem like he is he is not so proud to think that he is better than everyone else. Yes. The depictions of the proposal in that scene are are lovely and we can we can go back and look at that, but I do like their playfulness once they are engaged and how Elizabeth kind of um teases him. She she has said to Jane that she thinks maybe she fell in love with Darcy when she first saw Pemberley. She's <laughs> joking there, but I think it's important that Austin points us to that. So, and she asks him, like, when did you first fall in love with me and what was it for? And, you know, she says, I know it wasn't about my family. So was it about my impertinence? Is that what you loved? And he kind of says, yes, <laughs> for the mm-hmm. liveliness of your mind. And I, I love the parallel to that. The first thing we hear that Darcy admires is her lively eyes, but he always admired both her physical beauty and the way her eyes kind of conveyed this sparkling, witty personality. And he he tells her that that's, that's what made him fall in love, and it's so sweet. It's completely swoony. Mm-hmm. It's one of the swooniest scenes in literature, and I love that it is unabashedly swoonworthy in that way. And I don't know, I'm a sucker for a good romantic scene. And I think this one just might top them all. But I mean, their conversation is, it's pages of just dialogue. It's just them talking back and forth. And they, of course, are talking about their feelings, but they're sort of rehashing the past a little bit. They're not just moving forward without healing a little bit of the wrongs that they did to each other. It's just, it's very healthy. It is. And I I think it's an important bookend to how we start the story with Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, who we could read that scene as playful, but the more we learn about them, the more we know there's a lot of built up resentment there. Um, So I, I think having those intimate conversations or conversations just between a couple. She shows us so much in those. Yeah, I just, I I really like how they reflect on the past and sort of say, well, you must have been, you must have been so angry. And then the other person's like, well, I wasn't really that angry. I was just surprised. Or And they are showing each other their emotions and how they were really feeling in those moments and going back to that. And it's it's so much smoother than their prior conversations, and it's more familiar. I mean, if you really were to sort of dissect the linguistics of these sentences, they are not being short and terse with each other, as they were in a lot of those sort of um, parlor scenes or drawing room scenes. They it's it's much more like a dance at the end here. And I I think maybe one of my favorite parts is where um, Darcy is saying that when Lady Catherine told him that Elizabeth wouldn't 
say no. She would never be engaged. He says, it taught me to hope as I had scarcely ever allowed myself to hope before. I knew enough of your disposition to be certain that had you been absolutely irrevocably decided against me, you would have acknowledged it to Lady Catherine, frankly and openly. And Elizabeth blushes and she laughs. And I just love that line of like, I know you well enough to know that you would have just said what's on your mind. And she says, yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that. After abusing you so abominably to your face, I could have no scruple in abusing you to all your relations. And that frankness and that honesty, like you said, I don't remember if it was part one or part two, that honesty and that frankness is what clearly is going to make them such a great couple together. We'll talk about adaptations. We're going to do a whole Patreon bonus episode about all our thoughts about movie adaptations, but I, I really like um, the the proposal scene where you know Darcy says, "You are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once." And Elizabeth, feeling all the more than common awkwardness and anxiety of his situation, now forced herself to speak. And immediately, though not very fluently, give him to understand that her sentiments had undergone so material a change on and on. I don't like that in the proposal scene in the Kira Knightley movie, he says, you know, speak now if you feel the same. And she just remains silent. I, mm-hmm. I like that in the book. She she feels awkward. She's not sure how she's going to say it. It, it doesn't come out fluently or smoothly, but she... She makes herself speak her feelings, which is hard for her, but he needs to hear it and she needs to say it. I also love how, I mean, speaking of sort of being realistic, but romantic after the sort of accepted proposal scene, Lizzie and Darcy come back and the evening is kind of quiet and it says, Darcy was not of a disposition in which happiness overflows in mirth. And Elizabeth, agitated and confused, rather knew that she was happy than felt herself to be so. For besides the immediate embarrassment, there were other evils before her. She knows that her family is going (laughs) to question her choices and really wonder why she is with this guy. After everyone disliked him so much, after she talked about how much she disliked him. And I think it's really fun and sweet that, like, she's really happy, but she's really nervous about what her family is going to think. And it shows just how much she loves her family. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the Regency courting where a couple didn't spend, like, they haven't spent much time together. They probably know each other a lot better than many other Regency couples heading to the altar. But there's still that awkwardness and like, okay, we we're going to get married. Now what? What do we talk about? What do we how do we merge our lives? And I yeah, I, I think romantic but realistic is a great, great way to put it. It's pretty clear that one of the big themes that Austin is trying to get the reader to acknowledge and to learn and maybe internalize is that first impressions aren't everything and that being too proud and too judgmental can obviously cause huge detrimental effects to relationships. 
and sort of might ruin what could have been. But it seems like she is also saying something important about love and romance here, aside from the fact that it should be well-balanced with the comfort of money. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, based on Pride and Prejudice, and I mean certainly the other Austen novels that you read, how do you think she defines romance and what is she saying about love here? I actually wrote a whole paper on this. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I, I think that in Austen's novels, and I think the two we've covered, Pride and Prejudice and Emma, probably show this the best. She's saying that the best romantic relationships are the ones that make both parties better people. And both because each person wants to be the best version of themselves because they love the other person so much, but also that both parties are honest with each other about what what they need and about each other's flaws and that that leads to growth. I mean, I think it's very telling that in one of the last chapters of the book, she says, as for Wickham and Lydia, their character suffered no revolution. They haven't changed at all, mm -hmm. even after getting married, even after everything they've been through. But, you know, I think even Jane and Bingley have learned how to be more forthcoming with each other. And they've grown. And, and Darcy and Elizabeth are, are, of course, our best examples of change and growth and striving to be better for the person that you love. And I, I really love that. I think I might have said something similar when we were talking about Emma that, you know, I, I think it's maybe a little bit contrary to a trope or theme in more modern romances about you should be with the person who just accepts you exactly as you are. And, and I mean, Darcy does accept Elizabeth exactly as she is. She does him, but that doesn't mean that they don't try to help each other become better along the way as well. And I, I like that. I think that's what she's saying about love, at least in part. Earlier in the novel, I think that Charlotte Lucas talks about how it's better to get married quickly before you really, really know someone <laughs> because you can just get married when things are fresh and exciting and you can get to know their flaws later as you're married and that's the way to do it. And I think that Jane Austen is arguing that that's not the case and that a really long courtship where you're actually building a friendship is probably the best way to see the other person's flaws, to be honest and communicate with them around those flaws, and then to accept the other person. Elizabeth and Darcy are still prideful people. They're still going to argue. They are still going to hurt each other's feelings because of their honesty, but at least they can fall back on, well, I knew what I was getting into with you, and I know that I can love you anyway, and I know that your good qualities certainly outweigh these bad ones. And without that sort of really extended courtship that wasn't really a courtship, but where they were able to build a relationship together and sort of figure out how they got along, we wouldn't have that. And I, you know, you have to wonder, would they actually have been able to make it work? I mean, they would have because it's not like they were going to get divorced. But would they be happy if Elizabeth just said yes to his insulting proposal right away and they started their marriage not being happy with each other and where she was just in love with Pemberley and not with him? 
And so I, I think that, you know, we've talked about how Charlotte is certainly the practical one, but I don't think she's a mouthpiece for Jane Austen by any means. I think that Jane is certainly arguing that it is much better to get to know someone and get a full picture of them before you settle down. I like that. And and as you are speaking, I'm, I'm kind of reminded that, you know, we often talk about Pride and Prejudice as an enemies to lovers romance. And that's true for Elizabeth. But if we were looking on Darcy's side, I don't think he understands Elizabeth's distaste for him for much of this novel. So it kind of is a friend's to lovers for him, like really getting to know her, you know, sparring with her in a way that it, that he's kind of testing her intelligence and getting to know her and building a foundation, trying to figure out what her taste in books is, all of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like what you said about about that foundation. I think she would very much and, and many of her other books suggest that that foundation is very important as well. So. I mean, I've just blabbed about this to you in general, <laughs> that I firmly believe that if we were to place Jane Austen in any genre today, it would be contemporary romance and that she was writing contemporary romance in her time. And she's, I mean, she's just the mother of so many romance tropes that we see in the genre and in women's fiction. And I, I do think that many readers think of Pride and Prejudice as the original enemies to lovers. And that is, you know, true in some ways. But yeah, I do have to say when I am reading contemporary romance, the books that I love that really work for me are not necessarily the enemies to lovers where they're truly hating each other with a fiery passion and then something happens that turns the tide. But it's where two people are clashing because of their personalities, and yet there's something about the other person that they kind of like, too. And we only get that from their inner dialogue. And that's Austin. Because we can see from, you know, getting in from Darcy's perspective a little bit and then getting from Elizabeth's perspective. It's not... We do see that Elizabeth might hate him more, and certainly he doesn't like her right away until he spends a little more time with her. But we we do get that sense. And my favorite contemporary enemies to lovers romances definitely are more in the Austin-like category than that like ferocious rivals kind of deal. And of course, reading Pride and Prejudice, I'm like, of course, of course, that's why I love that. <laughs> One thing I always loved about teaching it, I, I said on the previous episode that it was really fun to read with students who didn't necessarily know who was going to end up with whom. But always when we got to the end and Elizabeth marries Darcy, they would say, well, that was so predictable. And I was like, well, first of all, you didn't predict it. But second of all, of course it was predictable because so many stories that that we've all grown up with and loved are rooted in in this but I don't know I, it never feels tired to me when I come back to Pride and Prejudice like like you mentioned something new always delights me something new is always revealed about a character that I didn't quite see before some new theme come comes up about 
relationships and family. And there, this book is just so layered and it is, and I, I don't want to, you know, dismiss other romances as well. This, this is a romance and it's doing so much work to comment on society and institutions and human behavior. And I think that often romance is one of the best genres to, to do all of that observation in. I agree. And I truly think that for people who maybe are new to the romance genre in general, or are just thinking about picking up a romance, if you read one from about 2015 on, I mean, certainly er earlier ones were doing this too, but especially modern contemporary romance, I think that people will find the social commentary that Austin has. They will find those layers. Some of the best contemporary romances that I've read lately are about people who are not only navigating their relationships, but they're navigating their families and they're setting boundaries with their parents and they are sort of, you know, learning um, about themselves in such similar ways to Elizabeth and Darcy. And it is really fun to go back to Pride and Prejudice and see where it all came from and to see such a shining example of the genre that I love so much and that I've especially gotten into over the last couple of years. But Pride and Prejudice will always be my favorite. With that, <laughs> knowing that Pride and Prejudice will always be our favorite, but that it's inspired some really wonderful, more contemporary romances. Let's get into our pairings, Chelsea. All right. The first pairing that I have is The Next Great Jane by K.L. Going. And this is a middle grade novel that I read a few months ago in one sitting. I couldn't put it down. I read it all in one night. It's completely charming and delightful and totally Jane Austen inspired. It's a little bit of a mashup of a few Jane Austen novels, but Really, the backbone of it is Pride and Prejudice. So, like I said, this is middle grade, and it is about a young girl named Jane Brannan, and she wants to be a famous author, just like Jane Austen. So that is why it's called The Next Great Jane. And she just needs to figure out how to be successful. So she's really, really excited when J.E. Fairfax, a famous author, comes to her tiny little town. But then a hurricane rolls in and basically ruins her chances of talking to the author about the writing life. But then J.E. Fairfax, her son, Devin, ends up in Jane's school and he's really snobby. She doesn't like him. There's very much a Darcy Elizabeth relationship with them. And there is some other matchmaking stuff that ensues. There are so many nods to Austin in this, and it's just funny and sweet and charming. And part of what I like is that Jane lives with her dad, and her mother, Susan, left their family to go and be in Hollywood, and she has this new fiancé. Her mother comes back into town, and Jane is not only dealing with 
Devin and how much she dislikes him. She's not only dealing with wanting to be a great writer in all of her school projects, but she's also dealing with this drama with her mother. And this book is really about that mother-daughter relationship, which I love. And it's just, it's just so cute. And if you are a fan of Jane Austen and you need just sort of a page-turning light novel to distract and delight you, I can't recommend this one enough. It's so fun to pick up on all of the Austen references. And like I said, it definitely has the Pride and Prejudice backbone throughout the book. So that's The Next Great Jane by K.L. Going. That one is high on my list. It's Um, so cute, Sarah. It sounds adorable. (laughs) All right. My first pairing is, I feel like now that we've talked about the second half and we ended just swooning over the very end, I might have to just go all romance. (laughs) So I hope that's okay with everyone. But um, my first is Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Cole. Have you read this series or read anything from this author? I have read a little bit of um, Kowal's work, but I haven't read this one. It's definitely high on my list. So it's it's really fun. It is Regency historical fiction, but the series is called The Glamorist Histories. And in Mary Robinette Kowal's Regency world, women, one of the skills women are expected to cultivate is glamour, which is basically a kind of magic where you just tinker with reality a little bit. And it is fascinating the way she writes about it. Some women glamour themselves to make themselves appear more beautiful. They can glamour rooms to make them more, um, again, beautiful and luxurious. And I, I love that because You know, one of the scenes in Pride and Prejudice that's so great is when Darcy and Caroline and Elizabeth are talking about what it means to be an accomplished woman. And for Caroline, it's all of these outward things, right? The entertaining factor. And for Darcy, it's more improving one's mind. And the the glamour is Kowal's way of kind of working in in both of those. And putting her own little creative spin on what an accomplished Regency woman was. And so I I love the magic in this book. The way she describes glamour is absolutely lovely. The story follows Jane and her sister Melody. Jane is a great glamorist, and Melody is considered the most beautiful, and they are both trying to find eligible husbands. There is some fun romance in here. There's a very brooding Byronic hero. I think a little more brooding than Darcy, but he's clearly quite Darcy-inspired as well. I've only read the first in this series, and I think there are four. I, I might read more. It's a really fun Regency world to immerse yourself in. So that is Shades of Milk and Honey. Okay, I have a couple of contemporary romances to recommend, and this first one is The Worst Best Man by Mia Sosa about a wedding planner who was left at the altar. It's obviously ironic, which is very Austin-like, but Carolina Santos is determined to sort of put the past behind her 
And she ends up in a place to basically just do her dream job. She has this incredible opportunity in front of her, and she's really determined to make her wedding planning business work. I bring this up because I think that in contemporary romance, rather than the sort of preoccupation with love and marriage, like in Jane Austen's time, we see the theme of love and career come up again and again and again. So rather than like figuring out how to balance love and money, it's balancing love and career. And rather than figuring out like, well, how am I going to get married? That's the only thing that I can do. It's more of how am I going to work and make my career work and also make room in my life for love? And that's really a big part of this novel because Carolina has this great opportunity, but in order to get her dream job, she has to work with her ex-fiance's brother. And that might sound kind of weird, but it works in this book. (laughs) Just trust me, it really works. Obviously, like, they're going to have this animosity, and she especially hates him. But he's like, oh, well, she is actually really hot. And I shouldn't think that because she's my brother's ex-fiance, but, like, I do. So there's that great tension and they have to basically work on a pitch together. And over the course of them working together, they get to know one another. They build a little bit of a friendship. Of course, sparks fly. And I think that there's this element where he really cares about her career and really cares about putting her career first before himself in the same way that Darcy puts Elizabeth's family first. And I really, really loved it. And this is slated to be a movie. Oh, so I'm really looking forward to that because I think that we need more rom-coms in our lives. At least I know I do. Absolutely. So this one is really fun. I listened to it on audio and I was cracking up, which often happens when I listen to Pride and Prejudice on audio. So it is The Worst Best Man by Mia Sosa. All right. I have been struggling here trying to choose, but I think because (laughs) I just love Pride and Prejudice so much, I just have to go with the books that I love the most, even if they aren't as perfect of pairings. That's a teaser for you all that maybe we'll do a blog post or something with some bonus pairings. But um, my next pairing is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. This book is everywhere. I'm under no illusion that you are hearing about it from for the first time from our podcast. But I read this at the onset of the pandemic, so about a year ago now. And it was so comforting in a way that I really haven't found in many books outside of Jane Austen. And so that that feeling is my, my first connection here. But this book is about um, two young men. We have Alex. He is the son of the first woman president of the United States. And we have Henry who is the Prince of Wales. And so they encounter each other fairly regularly at, you know, fancy political events. And they don't really get along very well, mostly because Alex just thinks Henry is a really boring snob. And 
there is some little tidbit of drama. The tabloids pick up this fact that maybe these two young men hate each other and that could be bad for for optics for both families. And so the two are forced to be fake friends and go on some friend hangouts so we can show the tabloids that they get along just fine. Well, not only might they actually be friendly with each other, there might be even something more like romance between these two. And I I really loved this romance because much like Darcy and Elizabeth, there's that solid foundation of friendship and banter, of revealing some vulnerable things that you feel like you can't share with other people. I, I think Henry is a great kind of Darcy stand-in in his social awkwardness. And yes, maybe he is a little bit snobby, but maybe that's about protecting himself more than anything. Um, Alex is a good Elizabeth in terms of how judgmental he is. I uh, wrote a paper about how Elizabeth was kind of a Regency hipster in one of my classes. And Alex kind of has some of those um, I'm cooler than everyone vibes as well. Um, So I I love this one. And it's not, um, this isn't social satire like Jane Austen, but it is doing some interesting things with critiquing and just looking at our society as it exists today, even though it's giving you kind of an idealized version of the society. So I, I also like that pairing component where uh, the the couple reminds me of Pride and Prejudice in some ways, but also just the way it invites you to look at the larger world and the the way things are and wondering if they have to be that way. So that is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. All right. My last pairing is another contemporary romance. And if I had to pick one modern author that I could compare to Jane Austen and like, oh, she is the modern Jane Austen. I would have to go with Talia Hibbert. I think that not only are her books so smart and funny, but I think that she writes amazing dialogue. I think that she is incredibly talented at pulling in real contemporary themes and examining society in such a fresh way. I recently read her most recent release, Act Your Age, Eve Brown, which is number three in the Brown Sisters series. And you can read those in any order. I think that this one might have been my favorite because it so feels like a Pride and Prejudice retelling. So we have Eve Brown and she's basically just a mess. Like she cannot do anything right. She can't hold down a job. Her parents are fed up with her, and so they give her an ultimatum and say, you cannot have your trust fund money until you go and get a job and prove to us that you can hold a job for a year. And like I said, I think that career is the modern Austin way of sort of examining love and money. So she basically like goes for a drive, and she comes across this bed and breakfast in a quaint little village and there's a help wanted sign and she's like I can be a cook in a 
bed and breakfast I love to cook and I love to bake. And so she goes in and she interviews and the owner of the bed and breakfast is Jacob and he is an ass. <laughs> he is very buttoned up. He has to be in control. He is a perfectionist and he is really struggling to hire someone, but his best friend convinces him to hire Eve. And right away, Jacob like doesn't want to like her, but he can't help it because she's bubbly and she's fun and she's bright. And it's so Darcy and Elizabeth, their personality contrasts. Jacob is also autistic. And I think that Talia Hibbert does such a great job of showing how his autism influences his life, but also sort of, I don't know, just revealing how his personality isn't just tied up in his autism. And it's just so well done. And the social awkwardness is there partly because of his diagnosis, but also just because that's who he is. And that's who Eve is too. And they are kind of awkward together. And they have to run this B&B together. So we've got the Darcy and Elizabeth set up. I think that Jacob and his best friend are very Darcy and Bingley. His best friend even has sisters who take Eve out at one point. And Eve is navigating this world where she is incredibly privileged and rich. And Jacob is not. So they've got that class divide going. I just think this is such a delightful Pride and Prejudice if not retelling, then certainly inspired by Pride and Prejudice. And so the town that this book takes place in is called Skybriar. Talia Hibbert is contracted to write three Austin retellings in a series called Skybriar. And so this is like the bridge and the link to her Austin retellings. And so I wouldn't be surprised if these characters sort of show up again. If maybe Jacob is the Darcy character in another book, I'm really curious to see how she does it, but I'm so excited for her Austin retellings. And I think that actor age Eve Brown is a really good one to hold us over until those come out. I am so excited for those. And Talia Hibbert, she puts out books quickly. So I feel like, I mean, I know this just got announced and so I'm, I'm going to be patient, but I don't feel like this is going to be a we're going to wait years and years and years kind of thing. So fingers crossed. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be 2022 that the first one comes out. Great. So that's not so bad. I will also say Talia Hibbert's books are really, really steamy. And actor age Eve Brown is probably the spiciest out of the Brown sisters books, like Five Alarm Fire Spicy. So do you know that going in Mia Sosa's book that I mentioned, The Worst Best Man, is also an open door romance, but it's not quite as spicy as Eve Brown. Hmm. I should add, I guess, too, that Red, White, and Royal Blue, it's also open door, but I I don't think it's particularly steamy. Um, it's it's more kind of introducing some things and then fading away. So, um, so like two eggplant emojis. That's what one of my friends uses. Out of how many? I don't know. Five. (laughs) Five is like, oh my gosh. I think of it as like, I really only have like a three book rating, like a book that I will read and I'll give to my mom 
Mm-hmm. And we can like talk about together or listen to in the car together. Okay. A book that I'll read and give to my mom, but like I don't want to hear about it that like mm-hmm. she read it or a book that I read and like won't tell my mom that I read it. <laughs> okay. This was the number, number two, I think. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, I like that rating. The mom rating is a good one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, my last pick is not steamy at all. It is not a romance. I'm going to go for my last pairing with the Jane Austen society by Natalie Jenner. And This is another book that totally delighted me earlier in 2020. It was very comforting. It is set in post-World War II Chawton, and that is where Jane Austen's home was for for many years. Her her brother lived there and gave Jane and her sister and mom a, a small cottage to live in. And the book is about a group of people who love Jane Austen's books And they are determined to save her house. I think a developer is coming in and wants to, you know, I think they want to turn it into a golf course. Um, And this group of readers is not going to stand for that. And so they try to work to make it a a museum. And this is this is fiction. Um, The house is a museum, but it's this book isn't inspired by a real group of people or anything. It's all Natalie Jenner's imaginings. But I. I really, I loved this book, I think in large part because of the personal connection. I got to go to Chawton and see Jane's house and I could really imagine the town. But I I also, I think it has that same theme of, you know, doing the best for your loved ones and taking care of each other and acts of service as a way to show love and affection. And so while there's not a big sweeping romance in this book, although there are some couples to root for, for sure. Um, it really is more about, about taking care of, of friends and um, stepping up when when you're needed. And so I, I really love this one. It, of course, could pair with any Jane Austen book. It's much more about her and her history and her community than any single Book, but I think you'll find characters who feel very Lizzie-like and very Darcy-like in here, and even some kind of Bennett-like and Caroline Bingley-like characters as well. Um, it does a great job depicting differences in class and social standing, which still still exists today and still very much existed post-World War II. So I really loved this one. It's it's a sweet comfort read. And Richard Armitage reads the audiobook which is definitely the way to go, I think, if you're going to pick this one up. So that's The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. Sarah, I'm sad that we are done talking about Pride and Prejudice. Well, we have we have more to talk about. We're going to be doing another Instagram Live. And our next episode where we talk about retellings, I'm pretty sure we're going to get into some nitty-gritty Pride and Prejudice stuff in that when we talk about what we like and hate in retellings. This is true. Yes, there is a lot more to come. With that said, do you have a pick of the week to share to carry us over for more Jane Austen stuff? Sure. I'm going to recommend a movie. I'm going to recommend Austen Land. It is, it's also a book, but I think just watch the movie. I mean, the book is fine, but (laughs) um, the movie is so fun. It is about 
Carrie Russell. I don't remember her name in the movie, but <laughs> me neither. Carrie Russell, she's <laughs> delightful. And she is obsessed with Jane Austen, particularly she's in love with Mr. Darcy, particularly the Colin Firth, Mr. Darcy. And this has kind of prevented her in some ways from finding a satisfactory romantic relationship in her real life because no one can live up to Mr. Darcy. And she hears about I think her aunt gives her a treats her to a vacation where <laughs> she goes to this place where they basically reenact Regency for mostly American women who come <laughs> over and, and want to live in an Austin novel. And she gets to wear Regency dresses and go to dances. And there, of course, are love interests. One hilarious thing is that she can't afford a very good package. So she's like, you know, supposed to be playing a penniless, you know, non-heiress and other women pay more and get the fancier treatment. It's just really fun for any Austin nerd. And I think that the um, main love interest in this is maybe most closely aligned with Darcy in terms of Jane Austen's romantic heroes. That's such a fun movie. And I also love that these women are paying for the super fancy packages and she ends up being the sort of lower class heroine. But that is a Jane Austen heroine. Exactly. That's who you want to be. <laughs> yep. I love that too. All right, Chelsea, how about you? Do you have a pick for us? I have an ASMR room that I will link that will make you feel like you are sitting in an Austen novel. It's like a little... Austin-like parlor. It's really delightful. And I have a couple of playlists that I listen to while I'm working that are basically just collections of like every Jane Austen soundtrack ever. And I especially really like the Emma soundtrack when I work, but Pride and Prejudice is great too. So those are just a couple of ambient, delightful things that can make you feel like you're in Pride and Prejudice all the time. I love that. Speaking of being in Pride and Prejudice all the time, we are not done yet. We have some, we have an Instagram live event coming up. Make sure you follow us at Novel Pairings Pod for that. And we have a bunch of fun stuff going on in our Patreon community. We have a Jane Austen class that we taught that is up and ready for you to watch at your convenience. We have bonus episodes, deep diving even more into Pride and Prejudice. And at the end of this month, we have a live book club discussion, and we cannot wait to talk even more about Pride and Prejudice with you all. So you can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community. And if you want to be the first to know about our Instagram live schedule, our Patreon content, and other behind the scenes stuff, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We can't wait to hear about your experience with part two of Pride and Prejudice. So come chat with us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod. And it does wonders for us and makes us so happy to know that you're listening. So if you take a screenshot of this episode and share it in your Instagram stories, don't forget to tag us. We love to see those. You can also keep spreading the word about novel pairings by sending your friends a link to your favorite episode or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance, and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. 
Next week, we'll be back with an episode full of Pride and Prejudice retellings and adaptations. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.